This is John chapter 3, verse 1 through 16. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told Now, when you look at this passage, um, the fact that I think this is an important topic is totally irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, Jesus himself thinks this is a terribly important issue, doesn't he? Look at verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 7, do not marvel that I send unto you, you must be born again. What I'd like to do, therefore, this morning is, is to try to explain, as best I can, what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born again. We've all heard the phrase, born again. And then I'm afraid people attach their own meaning to it. I go crazy when I listen to the press, you know, where this is, this is uh, election season. And we just had the Iowa caucuses, and the press decided where the born-again vote was going to be cast. Ah! <laughs> Agree or disagree on the politics, that's just makes you angry, but don't let the press or other people define or cause you to be turned off to this word, because it's one that Jesus himself used. What did he mean? And and if I, if I can answer that, then, of course, the question is really for you personally. Do you understand this, this new birth in terms of your own life, your own spiritual journey? 
If we can kind of discuss those two things, I think we'll be doing we'll be doing well. First, the first thing I want you to, to notice is that we are still talking about the kingdom of God, aren't we? This is what we've been discussing. Those of you who've been with us for all, for the fall, we've been trying to look at what we've called God's big picture. The fact that this is a world created by God, fallen into sin, and yet from the very beginning of the fall, God promised there would come a great day when he would deliver the world and bring it back and, and redeem it. And, of course, that's all wrapped up in the whole Advent story where the angels saying, Good news! God has kept his promise. A Savior has come. The kingdom of God is here. That was the message uh, that John the Baptist started proclaiming. And, uh, in fact, when Jesus began his public ministry, which is really where the point is of this passage, that was his message. Repent. Prepare. The kingdom of God is here. John the Baptist saying the same thing. Repent and be baptized. For the kingdom of God is here. And I think that's what draw Nicodemus into, the, into this conversation with Jesus. You notice the passage says he, he came to Jesus by night. I don't think that's because he was sort of ashamed. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus because he was a Pharisee, a prominent leader. I think he wanted to have a serious conversation with Jesus about the kingdom. Because after all, Israel had been anticipated, anticipating this for a long time. And there's nothing in here that, where Jesus said, no, no, that's not important. What's important is, you know, your own personal salvation. We so often sort of go off into that direction. But he said, <laughs> and clearly Nicodemus was hit right between the eyes. He, he came and he paid quite a compliment, didn't he, in verse 2. He called him rabbi. This is this young man who suddenly appears out of nowhere and he addresses him as rabbi. We know that you were a teacher come from God. For no one could do these signs unless God was with him. And we would expect that the, this young upstart preacher would sort of bow and say, Oh, thank you, sir. I'm so honored to have you here. But in fact, what did he do? He sort of hit him right between the eyes and said, I tell you, truly, truly, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So here we are still talking about the kingdom. There's, you know, a debate that goes on. What is the mission of the church? Is it to preach personal salvation? Or is it to proclaim the great kingdom of God and all of God's great purposes? It's both. The point is simply that if you're going to begin this life in the kingdom of God, this realm in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we pray for when we pray for the kingdom to come. It has to come by way of entering the door, right? Entering the door through which is called born again. So we're not dismissing the importance of the kingdom. We're saying you don't start a life in the kingdom until you have been born again. Again, I want to come back then. What does this mean? Well, let's come back to the passage and work our way through Jesus' explanation. Uh, Nicodemus is clearly caught off guard. 
verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter his, a second time into his mother's womb to be born? I'm going to explain in a few minutes. This, to me, became a huge clue as to explaining uh, what this is all about. When Nicodemus heard you must be born again, what did he think of? Yeah, you can talk to me. Physical birth, right? You must be born again? Wait a minute. Do you expect me to be born in my mother's womb? And I would simply say he got the point. Jesus had something else in mind, but he was thinking physical birth to understand spiritual birth. And, and, and this is what we'll come back to in just a few moments. But follow the passage. Keep, go, keep going with me just through these next few verses. Jesus answered, verse 5, I'm reading now. And he picks up again this phrase, truly, truly. Uh, amen, amen is what it is, literally. You've got to listen to this. This is important. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and, now notice carefully, please, look at the, look at the text. I hope you've all got it in front of you. Because this uh, verse punctuates it very carefully. Unless one is born of water and what? The capital S, Spirit. Clearly a reference to who? To the Holy Spirit. Okay. In case you missed it, go on to the next verse. That which is born of flesh is flesh. There's that comparison again. And that which is born of, now notice again, the capital S spirit is lowercase spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit gives life to my human spirit. In a word, that's what the new birth is. It is a birth by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to beat on the obvious, but I want you to get this. Because you still have people who say, oh yeah, you know, Jesus believed in reincarnation. He talks about being born again. No, this is not reincarnation, I'm sorry. Or people talk about some kind of new beginnings in your life. Uh, kind of get... get uh, whatever that goes on, to find your spiritual self, uh, all these other kind of, uh, frankly, gobbledygook, I call it Oprah Christianity. Um, find the spirit within you and awaken. No, no, no. You wanna, if you want to hold to that, that's fine, but that is not what Jesus meant, right? He meant the Holy, listen to this, the Holy Spirit of God. God himself moves into the human spirit. And where there was no life, life begins. Friends, this, there's no other way to describe this but a miracle. This is absolutely divine intervention into the life of ordinary people like you and me. We're on holy ground. God moving into the soul.
When you look at verse 5 again, there's questions among interpreters. Is it just what Jesus is referring to when he says you must be born of water? Uh, Some would say that's just another way of speaking of physical birth, drawing that parallel again. Um, My own view of this, and this is, again, my interpretation that I favor, is that the water refers to the water of, of baptism of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was around. That's what got Nicodemus, uh, got his attention, drawn to Jesus. And in effect, he's saying to, to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, it's fine that you're baptized with the water for repentance, but friend, that's not enough. And I would even say to those of you who would hold on to a, a, a Christian baptism, which I don't think is referred to here, but even if you say, but I've been baptized, all right, fine. But you must be born of water and what? And the Spirit. Interestingly enough, this word born, which is used several times through the passage, when we hear the word born, we always think of the baby emerging. But the literal word actually is the word uh, generate. Uh, the old-fashioned way of putting it is begot. And in fact, the same word is used of the, of the birth or the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was uh, born physically by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And the same word is now used of being born again. In fact, we use the word regeneration to describe what he's talking about here. And so he's simply saying, and I hope this um, makes sense to you. Because he is saying, Nicodemus, unless God comes and moves into your dead spirit to give it life, there's no entrance into the kingdom. Don't be surprised. I'm keeping going. Look at verse 7. See, Nicodemus, if he, if he was aware of the Old Testament, should have known that the prophecies were that in the day of the kingdom, God would, this is Ezekiel 39. We don't have time to stop and look at it. But he said in that day, God would take away the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh. And he said, and I will put my spirit within you. Effectively, Jesus saying, Nicodemus, you should know about this. But don't be surprised that I say to you, and he, he emphasizes it again, you must be born again. Now, I have to confess that for the longest time when I read that, uh, I read it as a command. And I think that's how it's commonly taken. Sort of like Jesus pointing the finger and saying, you, be born again. In other words, go out and do something about it. You, you get yourself born again. That's not the point at all, is it? The whole flow is this is something God has to do and that only God can do. That the life, the spiritual life comes from God and he must do this. And that's exactly the point of this verse. It's not a command. You can't write a book and people do so with, they mean well, but they say, here's how to be born again. You've got one, two, three, four, five steps to follow. No, it's it's something God has to do. In fact, if our English teacher, Duane, was here, he'd point out this is not what we call an imperative. That is a command. It's an indicative. That is a statement. This is what has to happen. 
But God has to do it. I mean, after all, what did you have to do with your first birth? Well, we were there. I guess we came into being, but that's about it. And, and so, in fact, and this is the last verse we'll look at as we try to describe this, but look at verse 8, which I think is one of the most sublime verses in all of the Scripture. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Because we are ultimately dealing with the mysterious, invisible moving of God. Doesn't fit into a, any kind of established norm, but, but God himself moving in the heart like the blowing of the wind. And the word wind and the word spirit is the same word, by the way. So Jesus is deliberately doing a play on words here. But you can also say this as you reflect on this passage. While you cannot see the wind, you can see the effects of the wind. And if I had a, a window here, I could look out and I could, I, could, I, use, I could use the phrase, couldn't I? I see that the wind is blowing. But what am I seeing? I'm seeing the trees move. I'm seeing the effects of the wind. And in the same way, when you study the Bible on this question, what is the effect of this invisible moving of the Holy Spirit into the life? It is that we are pushed, drawn, pulled, wooed, won, drawn to the person of Jesus Christ. The end result of this secret moving of the Holy Spirit in the new birth is that we embrace Jesus. In fact, that's what the passage goes on. We're jumping over, but just that wonderful text in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And I think in our common uh, dealings in church, we've, we've focused, and rightly so, on this coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Embracing Jesus, how I came to trust Christ as my Lord and Savior. But how did we get there? What was it that, that brought us to that place of believing? And that's where we begin to get into this whole mystery of the moving of the Holy Spirit in the life. And it looks different from everyone. You know, the end result is the same. And, and in just a few moments, we're going to stop and and receive the communion as the ultimate statement of what God has done to bring us to faith. That is that moving of the Spirit that has drawn us to embrace Jesus. And we say, yes, I want to publicly testify that I'm trusting in Christ. But how did we get there? What were those factors, those issues in your life that God brought you to an awareness of himself? It's really the, the kind of the third thing that I want us to, to wrestle with for these last few minutes together this morning. What has the new birth looked like in your life? The end result is the embracing of Jesus. 
But I, I've tried to think about this, and, and it really marked a turning point in my own in my own ministry. Years ago, I was preaching a sermon on John chapter three. I hate to tell you, but this is not the first time I've preached on this text. And I was simply thinking out loud about how is it that physical birth helps us to understand spiritual birth. And, you know, the whole idea of conception, the pregnancy, uh, publicly crying out. Um, I really hadn't formed it very well yet, but after I preached the sermon, I had two folks from... Uh, they, well, they actually were part of Prison Fellowship. This is the, this is the, the ministry of Charles Colson. These were, these were the days when the ministry was just beginning. And these were two folks who'd been in prison themselves, who'd become believers in prison. And they walked up to me after the sermon and they said, Steve, you know what you just did? I said, no, I wasn't sure what they were getting at. And they said, you just told us God's part of salvation. And we've never heard that before. They went on to say, you know, there's, if, if truth be told, there's no one more evangelized than men and women who are in jail or in prison. Preachers line up to get their chance to tell them, to tell us, you need to repent. You need to give your heart to Jesus. And we hear that all the time. But we've never heard someone explain how God prepares the heart so that we can believe. You see, it's not only that God so loved the world that he gave his son, but God so loved the world that he gave his spirit. And so when God saves you, it's really an act of the triune God, the Father who loves you, the Son who came to die for you, but the Spirit who moves in your heart to show you your sin and your need, to begin to open your eyes to Jesus. They said, would you please explain that to a group of inmates who are coming to town? That's how Prison Fellowship got going. Chuck Colson would bring people from various prisons into the city to introduce them to bureaucrats. And, you know, the people running the prisons had never met a prisoner before. So... Uh, but I had the chance to be a teacher. And so taking their cue, I came back to them, I think it was even the next day, and I drew out a little timeline. I said, let's think about physical birth. How does, how does physical birth begin? It doesn't take long to think about it. Physical birth begins really with the conception of the baby, right? Now, that's intimate and hidden and virtually invisible, but it starts to grow. Some of you are in the midst of that right now. We're beginning to see a little more evidence that there's new life, but we still can't see it, can we? Something's going on. New life is forming. But there will come a day more or less nine months down the road, when that new life has to go public, right? Off you go to the hospital or the birthing center or whatever, and ah, Johnny comes out. 
Now, what do we say at that point? Johnny's alive? Well, yeah, but Johnny's been alive, right, for about nine months now. He's just ready to make the announcement. And that's not the end of the story, is it? It's not the beginning, but it's not the end either. Johnny then continues to grow up. And all I said to folks was, isn't that something like what happens in spiritual journey? It really doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. And I will tell you, because I've done this for years now, and if we had time to do a whole seminar, and, and you, each one of you had a chance to stop and think about your own pilgrimage, the fact is people begin to find themselves thinking farther and farther and farther back into their lives to see the hand of God moving and working. Even before they were believers, even when they were denying the faith, perhaps, even when they hated the name of God, something was stirring. And through all sorts of different circumstances, people begin, it's even happened in this community right here, listening, paying attention. Suddenly it makes sense. They begin to see Christ lived as well as, they, as, as hearing about Christ until inevitably that new life has to go public. And we call it a conversion. And people cry out and call upon the name of God and ask his forgiveness and has to be saved. But in a genuine conversion, that's not the end of the story. It's not the beginning of the story either. You thought that your spiritual life began when you, quote, accepted Jesus? Well, think about it. Why did you accept Jesus? See, this is the grace of God moving in your life, bringing you to that place of trust. And then when there's a genuine conversion, not just a praying of a prayer saying words, but when there's genuine conversion, that's not the end of the story. It really is taking you into the next chapter of growing up in Christ. That's that little timeline. I would draw an X right in the middle of it. And I would say spiritually there, there comes that point when you go public. And I, I made it an X because for me that's what it was. I'm one of those who can tell you the day and the hour that I prayed the prayer. And we tend to take our conversion experience and sort of project it on everyone else. But out of this, it really changed my whole approach to, to understanding people and understanding ministry. And I began listening to people. And I said, you know that X that I drew on the line? Tell me more about your own conversion. Tell me about the story that brought you to faith. And, and that, that whole... Uh, understanding has evolved. Now I draw it as a dotted X. There is a point, a sense in which a, a, a place in your life when you just say, I am trusting in Jesus. But maybe you don't know exactly when. And friends, that's okay. We've tended, particularly with this word born again, people talk about the born again experience. And they want you to describe a particular moment that sounds like their conversion. It's just not the way it works. That's part of this mystery of the moving of the Spirit into the life. Well, all I can say is that I, I, I just kept writing and talking about it. I would get feedback from people, whether they were in prison or... And I didn't meet too many Presbyterians in prison um, over the years. 
uh, they, they get in for, not for robbery and murder, but for uh, fraud, stockbroker. There's many crooks as Presbyterians as Baptists or anyone else. But I began to realize just from so many different people, so many different backgrounds, the extraordinary variety of the ways in which people come to faith in Christ. So the bottom line is the same. I trust alone in Jesus as Lord and Savior. But how do we get there? There are just amazing stories. I actually ended up writing a book uh, on that whole topic. I'm not selling books. I'm giving them away. <laughs> uh, spiritual birth line. If you would like to pursue this matter further, and I've just kind of opened the door of this, I know. Um, you're welcome to take a copy. We're going to have a stack of them back there, and if they're all gone... I've got more. Uh, I found out this book's going out of print, so they offered me a very nice price on remnants of the copy. So I, got a, I can bring as many in as you want, but I really would like you to, to pursue this more. I, want, I wanted to close this morning. I'm not going to do it because uh, we really uh, our time is up. But I fill the book up with stories because there is no one way to describe how the Holy Spirit moves into individual lives. The story was a, a young woman named Kathy Quinn who discovered she was um, going to die of AIDS. And, uh, but this little idea of the, the birth line, as we call it, the timeline with the X, she'd been coming to our church for some time. I didn't even know her. I, I returned from a sabbatical and, and described my own journey, but then this X. I said, you know, there does come a point when you know you it's time. God's prepared your heart, but you personally need to surrender to Christ. That's the mystery of it, isn't it? Part of the blowing of the wind. It's God who works, and yet we must respond. I can't tell you how that works. In her case, just quietly sitting in a, in a pew in church, she opened her heart to Christ. And that was the beginning of a wonderful story. So what does it look like for you? That's really where we need to, to wrap up this morning. I, I had a chance to hear some of the stories as... People were coming into covenant. Uh, I knew that was just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and when I say story, I don't mean tell me about an experience. If that, if that was part of the story, that's fine. And, and I know some of you are probably tortured because you hear these glorious testimonies of people with their spectacular conversions out of a life of drugs or crime or whatever. And I, I've, I've certainly met any number of people who've grown up in Christian families where God used their parents to love them and just gently nurture them in the faith. And they, they've said, you know, I, I, I'm not a real Christian because I haven't had one of these spectacular uh, stories. No, I'm sorry. The question is, where are you now? And, and as you examine your own heart, has God brought you to a place? God brought you to a place 
where you humbly surrender to Jesus and trust him. That's why this communion is such a wonderful gift. Really, out of this teaching, I've come to appreciate more and more uh, how good God has been, the Lord Jesus, in leaving us this gift. Because, again, the end point is not what, what was your experience. The end point was, I, I testify today that really, in spite of myself, God has worked in my life in a way that's brought me to a, a place of trusting in Jesus Christ. And I want to bear witness to that fact. And that's what you can do in this communion. And furthermore, it represents being sustained, right? The bread and the wine. This is food for your soul that will sustain you for those next steps, for the next part of the walk that God has for you. So I invite you this morning to come. If you are indeed one who would bear witness to the fact that God has changed my life and I'm trusting in Christ, then bear witness to that fact by coming to this communion meal. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, um, we look around and we see one another and we see the, the outside. But as you see us, you see our hearts. And I thank you, O oh God of grace, that you did not leave us to wallow in our own selfishness. That you did not wait for us to come to you, but you came to us. Not only in the giving of your Son, which we will celebrate now, but in the giving of your Holy Spirit to move quietly and secretly and mysteriously into our lives awakening us to our sin, showing us Jesus in the gospel, giving us new desires to follow you. Oh, Lord, how humbled we are because we give you all glory and we claim none for ourselves. Those yet who've yet to, in a sense, kind of cross over the X, surrender to Christ, I pray that perhaps even now as we pray that they're making that surrender. But nevertheless, Lord, you are the one who pursues and you will continue to pursue and draw us to yourself. So I pray that even in going forward, liberty would increasingly be a place, really a A ward where, where babies are born and where babies grow and where babies get strong. Thank you again for this time, for the powerful word of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.